With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The following account is real. Names have been changed to protect the living and the innocent. This journal contains language and content that may not be suitable for all listeners. Life can be complicated. I'm not saying anything new. I'm just making a statement. The older I get, the more I feel like I'm just spinning plates while waiting for life to happen around me. The following story takes place over four days, and it's the first time in my life I started to hear the plates smashing around my feet. This story was originally supposed to be compressed into one 30-minute episode, but when I started working on this story, I realized almost immediately that I was going to need two episodes to talk about these four days. It was quite a week. Now, before we get into it, I realize I can be indulgent and long-winded from time to time, and I just want to be clear. This is going to be one of those times. (laughs) I mean, this story's two fucking episodes. Without wasting any more of your time, here's part one. Enjoy. Do you remember the first time you realized you were going to die? Like, really thought about it. Where you'll be, how it'll happen who will miss you the most and who won't miss you at all. It's not strange or morbid, it's natural. At some point, everyone needs to come to terms with the fact that over the course of the next however many years you're alive, your vessel of bone and meat carrying your brain around will eventually fully betray you by catching some disease or just cave to the pressures of biology plus gravity. Growing up with a father who's a funeral director and eventually working in my family's funeral home, I guess I never had to confront my own mortality. I was just always aware of it and thought of dying as something that happens in the future. I'm 21 years old and death seems far away at the moment, even though I'm surrounded by it every day here at the funeral home. I'm perfectly healthy, or at least I feel perfectly healthy. I go to yearly doctor visits and get my teeth cleaned on the regular, and so far there's been nothing to report back. Ever since I started working at the funeral home, I've gotten a series of shots every couple years. Honestly, I have no idea what shots they're giving me, but I figure the funeral home pays for them, so fuck it, why not? Along with getting all my shots, I'm also exercising vigorously every day with a personal trainer in a state-of-the-art gym. And by that I mean, I've been doing P90X with Tony Orton in my basement for the last four or five months. Did you know that Rabbit from Super Troopers is Eric with one leg in the P90X videos? Crazy, right? Anyway, I started whenever Mary left for her chemistry internship in Salt Lake City. I just didn't want to sit around all summer and think about her spending all of her time with her chemistry partner, Mike, and have her come back to me looking all flabby and wore out. 
Truthfully, Mary and I have been on rough waters since I noticed the I miss you text from Mike a little over a month ago. I think she knows I saw the text. She keeps her phone in her purse now when we hang out. She never did that before. I've been so busy at the funeral home since Mary's gotten back from her internship that I haven't been able to really spend much quality time with her, if you know what I mean. We haven't been very active lately. Anyway, my overly paranoid brain is convincing me that she must be getting her activity from someone else. Someone who isn't canceling dates because they smell like dead bodies, and probably someone who lives across the street, not 30 minutes away. I suspect that someone's name might be Mike. Lately, every conversation with Mary has been tense for a slurry of reasons. It's the funeral home, it's our schedules, it's Mary's school, it's all kinds of dumb shit. I don't know how much more patience Mary will have for me if things get much worse. And little did I know, things were about to go nuclear. My name is Grant, and these are my funeral home stories. Chapter 14, The Time I Thought I Had AIDS. Monday, it's 12.28 p.m. I'm up in the operating room helping Ned stitch up a six-point injection that came in this morning. I think his name is Mr. Ryan. I'm not sure. Ned picked him up from the hospital this morning while I was at school. I was moving a little slow when I strolled in today at 11, but I got the impression I'd have to pick up the pace when I saw everyone downstairs hustling to get our main chapel cleaned and switched over for visitation this afternoon. My dad sent me up to the prep room to help Ned's slow ass finish up an embalming that's already taken him three hours. You would think since it takes him so long, his work would be impeccable, precise, and tidy. But it's not. He's been embalming for over 40 years, and I swear to God, he's the messiest embalmer slash person in the business. After an embalming, the floor around Ned looks like an angry Jackson Pollock painting. Yeah, he's a mess, but I like working with Ned. He's no bullshit. Nothing phases him. He puts his head down and works until the job is done, even if the job is done half-assed. Plus, he lets me bum a dip whenever I need a little kick. So, that rules. We're both hovering over Mr. Ryan's body at our respective incisions. We have the Simon visitation starting at 2, which means the family will be here around 1, giving us about a half an hour to finish stitching this guy up so we can be downstairs to watch the door and help the Simons settle in. I don't know how other funeral homes work, but we generally let families come in an hour or so before the visitation is scheduled to start. This gives the family a little time to grieve privately with their loved one's body before we open the funeral home doors to the public. This hour also gives us time to fix any issues the family might be having with the body, like if we put grandma's ring on the wrong finger or need to touch up some makeup. Most of the time we get it right the first time. My dad makes sure of it. I'm biting my lower lip as I weave the needle in and out of Mr. Ryan's cold, firming flesh. My nose burns and I sneeze. It's the chemicals. Jesus, Ned hit this body hard. Whew. I've stitched the left femoral incision and most of the right so far. I'm not really the cleanest suturer, which is why Ned probably had me do the legs. They'll be covered by pants, so they don't have to be the neatest, but I'm still trying my best. I'm using a variation of an over-understitch that Lindsay showed me a few years ago, before she got fired. It's quick and dirty, but it gets the job done. Lindsay was always good about teaching me new things in the prep room, always taking her time to explain new concepts to me. Ned, on the other hand, is more of a figure-it-out-on-your-own-and-I'll-fix-it-if-you-fuck-it-up-too-bad type teacher. Both styles are great, but Lindsay's a lot hotter than Ned, so she wins. For whatever reason, now seems like a good time to note that Mr. Ryan is naked, laying on the operating table in front of me. 
Bodies are stripped prior to embalming because, one, it's a messy, invasive process that would be impossible to perform effectively if the body is wearing clothes, and two, we sanitize the body, washing the hair and scrubbing everything with soap and water. This gets rid of all the gunk and grime that the body may have come in with. So that's why Mr. Ryan's naked laying in front of me. Well, he's not completely naked. He has a medium-sized white hand towel covering his penis. I don't know if Ned does this out of respect for the dead or if he just doesn't like looking at dead guys' penises. Either way, since I'm working on Mr. Ryan's upper thigh, I appreciate the towel. So what do we do with the clothes that the bodies are brought in with, you might be wondering. Well, if the clothes aren't destroyed or covered in uncleanable human matter, we'll launder them and return them to the family. If not, they get tossed into the biohazard waste bin. Mr. Ryan's body jerks when Ned accidentally bumps his arm and it slides off the table. Ned wedges Mr. Ryan's arm back into place with a wooden block. Unbothered, I continue to stitch. The tool I'm using to stitch up this man's thigh is a 3-inch suture needle. It's a crazy looking curved needle with an eyelet on one end that pulls the suture material through the tiny puncture holes. The sound the needle makes when it tears and pops through the skin is both satisfying and sickening. I have to turn the part of my brain off that empathizes when I do this, otherwise all I'll do is think about what the needle would feel like going through my thigh every time I push it hard enough to pop through. I'll tell you, it does help that my needle pokes aren't drawing any blood. Since Mr. Ryan is dead and his heart isn't pumping any blood through his body, he's not bleeding. It's weird, you think you'll never forget what it's like to cut into a human body for the first time, but you do. It becomes just another thing you have to do. No different than making copies or running to the post office. Don't get me wrong, I still see these dead people coming in and out of the funeral home as people and respect them accordingly, but I just never thought I would be so blasé about cutting into someone else or giving them a wildly mediocre stitch job. Once I finish my last bit of stitching on the right leg, I grab some suture seal. It's a kind of rubber cement and a small strip of white cotton to cover my rough but functional stitching. It's 12.55 now. The Simons will be here any minute. Ned takes off his gloves and straightens himself up to go downstairs. Before he leaves, Ned points to a pile of instruments on the operating table next to Mr. Ryan's head and asks me to clean them in the sink and put them away. He's only asking because he hates to clean up his own messes, and he knows I have to say yes. Yeah man, I got it. I walk over and grab the small pile of oddly shaped tweezers and scalpels with both hands and walk over to the sink. The operating room door slams shut behind Ned and it startles me. As a result of being surprised by such a loud noise, my hands involuntarily tightened around the instruments, and I felt one of the sharper ones push and slide against the lowest, meatiest part of my middle finger on my right hand. It's right where the palm and finger meet. I immediately dumped everything into the sink, and unlike Mr. Ryan, there was blood. More than enough to be alarmed. I can see that I'm cut through my surgical glove and blood is dripping into the sink and I can see it moving around between my skin and the latex inside my glove. I take it off and turn the faucet on full blast with my finger underneath. The sting or burn or whatever the sensation is moves up my entire arm. I panic a little. I don't want anybody to know about this. It's so embarrassing. Plus we're so busy right now. I wonder if I'll need stitches. I pull my hand from under the stream of water to reveal a cut on the base of my finger about a half inch long, probably less. 
Okay, as long as I can stop the bleeding, I'll be fine. I grab a handful of paper towels and squeeze my bleeding fist around it. What am I going to use? A band-aid? I see the blood soaking into the paper towel. So much bleeding considering the size of the slice. There's no way a little ass band-aid's going to cover this. The intercom beeps on. Grant, intercom. Grant, intercom. It's Ned. Fuck, they probably need me downstairs. I push the speaker button on the phone near the sink and say as calmly as possible. Hey, what's up, Ned? We need you downstairs, Grant. The family has a bunch of food they need help carrying in. All right, I'll be right down. Ned hangs up. The paper towel in my hand is almost completely soaked through with blood. What am I going to do? I can't go down there and carry food with a bloody hand or a surgical glove on. That would be bad optics. But I can tell you I'm certainly not walking downstairs with egg on my face in front of my dad and Ned, telling them that I need to go to the hospital. I really don't want to have to do that, so I need to think fast. I see the suture seal I used to close up Mr. Ryan's incisions, and I have an idea. No, I'm not going to use it. That's horribly unsanitary and completely disgusting. But seeing the jar of glorified rubber cement reminds me that we have fresh tubes of superglue in our office next to the operating room. That should do the trick. I use superglue all the time to fill in broken blisters on my fingers and palms in between sets drumming at long bar gigs and wedding receptions. Professional wrestlers have been doing this shit for years, so if it's good enough for Stone Cold Steve Austin, it's good enough for me. I delicately wiped the blood away from the cut the best I could, and then I put about four or five generous drops of superglue in and on the slice. The glue and my blood mixed together. It sets and stops bleeding. After I ate lunch, I stood at the back door working the Simon's visitation until I left at five. I was just repeating the same couple of phrases over and over like an amusement park animatronic. Hi there. Are you folks here to see Mrs. Simons? Okay, she's going to be at the end of the hall and to your left. The register book is straight ahead. I must have had this same one-sided conversation 150 times today. I could feel my heartbeat through the cut on my hand most of the afternoon. I don't think I need stitches though. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Tuesday. It's 9.15. Everyone is out on the Simon service except Ned and I. I'm a little beat this morning. Didn't sleep too great last night. There were only two or three positions my hand was comfortable in. The sharp pain from my cut morphed overnight into a dull, nagging, throbbing pain. I've been dealing with it pretty well this morning. I have it covered with a flexible flesh-colored Band-Aid brand bandage, so I'm able to move my hand while also keeping it germ-free. 
I called Mary on my way home from work yesterday to tell her about it, but she was at her friend's lacrosse game, so it was too loud to talk, and she never called me back. She must have had a lot of homework to finish up after the game, or something. Ned and I are getting Mr. Ryan dressed. His family came in yesterday to finalize arrangements and drop off his clothes so we can get him dressed for his visitation Thursday, 2 to 4 and 6 to 8. I'm off Thursday night, and thank God, because those long visitations are the worst. You honestly just stand in the same spot for four or five hours asking visitors if they're there to see Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so. And guess what? Of course they are. Most people don't stumble into a funeral home after 5 p.m. without a particular purpose. For those four hours, you're basically just a babysitter that's there to make sure the bathrooms are functional, there's plenty of hot coffee, and no one does anything weird to the body. That sort of thing doesn't happen very often, but occasionally shit goes sideways and a casket ends up on the floor. I don't think we'll have to worry about that with Mr. Ryan's family. Plus, I won't be working. So, if it does happen, it's not my problem. I'll be over at Mary's dorm having cocktails and watching Grey's Anatomy. I can't wait. I haven't seen Mary since last Thursday, and I'm dying to know what happens to Meredith Grey this season. That sounds way better than four hours of visitation. The AC in the prep room has been running all morning, and it feels like it's about 40 degrees in here. Ned likes it chilly when he's working. Plus, he gets the old man sweats. Dressing a body is a lot easier than I imagined before I started working at the funeral home. As a kid, I do remember being exceptionally curious about how a director puts a t-shirt or sweater on a dead body without stretching out the neck and armholes. The method is so obvious I felt foolish when my dad smartened me up. Scissors. All you do is split the shirt up the back and slide the arms through the sleeves while draping the rest of the garment over the body. Tucking in the excess, of course. That's how it's done. Super simple, but very effective. We split just about everything but the pants. As Ned and I are propping Mr. Ryan's rigid embalmed lower half up to slide his pants down towards his waist, I admire my handiwork on both of his legs. Neither one of my incisions is leaking through the stitching, suture seal, and cotton. I'm proud of myself for a moment until I feel the inside of my surgical glove pull on the band-aid covering my accidental incision from yesterday. I pulled the superglue out last night while I was sleeping. I woke up to dried blood all over my hand, but the cut seemed to be clotted up. So I cleaned it out with hydrogen peroxide and covered it with neosporin and a band-aid before leaving the house this morning. I'd say Ned and I have Mr. Ryan looking pretty sharp, even though his clothes don't really fit him that well. He must have lost a lot of weight from whatever killed him. Either way, I think the family is going to be pretty pleased with how he looks. Ned decides he's going to put foundation on Mr. Ryan's hands to help cover up some of the bruising that'll be noticeable at the visitation. Even if it's just bruising, we don't want the family to think we've missed any detail in the preparation and care for their loved one. Just about every body we get here has some bruising or blood pooling somewhere on their body, but I feel like I've seen more bruising on the tops of hands lately. I guess we've had mostly old folks and hospital calls the last couple months, so I suppose a lot of the bruising comes from IVs stuck in the tops of people's hands. Skin discoloration is easy to cover up, but you always need to make sure your body is embalmed completely. Some bodies just have poor circulation, so it's easy to under-embalm an arm or a leg if you only inject from the neck and don't push enough embalming fluid down the appendages. Usually a director will catch a finicky arm or leg before they move the body off the operating table, but that isn't always the case. Sometimes you don't notice a gangrenous limb until you hit a speed bump in a church parking lot on your way to a service. That's always fun. 
We shouldn't have to worry about Mr. Ryan falling apart on us, though. My nose noticed it yesterday. Ned and bombed this guy hard. In simplest terms, the ones I understand, he injected this guy with a ton of chemicals and now his body and skin are super rigid. Mr. Ryan is a well-preserved body. Nice job, Ned. I carefully take off my gloves, avoiding too much contact with my sore finger. Ned's almost got Mr. Ryan's hand bruises covered up with a thick layer of foundation when he hears me wince. You alright? Ned says, looking at me concerned. Yeah, I'm good. Just nicked myself yesterday, helping you out up here. It's a little tender today. No big deal. How'd it happen? He says, focusing back on Mr. Ryan's hands. I did it while I was cleaning up the instruments he left on the table. Ned stops moving and looks over at me. One of the scalpels? I think so, I say, looking at my bandage. Why didn't you tell anyone? I don't know, Ned. We're so busy and I figured it was just a cut. Ned puts the makeup brush down. You know Mr. Ryan has AIDS, right? My stomach flips and I feel my face immediately flush. Remember that moment I talked about earlier? That moment when you realize you're actually going to die? Well, this was it for me. It's not my body catching something years from now that's going to kill me. It's what I did yesterday. I'm a bit of a compulsive warrior, so when Ned dropped the AIDS bomb on me, it was like he said, Grant, you definitely have AIDS now. Oh my god, I can feel my panic instantly turn to anger, and it's pointed at Ned. What the fuck, Ned? Why didn't you tell me Mr. Ryan had AIDS when I came up to help? I would have been so much more careful. Ned takes his time responding. You probably don't have anything. Those scalpels were under running water for a while before you moved them, but you still need to go get checked out. Ned's tone changes for this next part. Grant, I didn't think to tell you because I didn't think I had to. You work here. You're the only one that can be responsible for you, and you've worked here too long for me to have to explain the importance of universal precaution to you. Universal what? I ask Ned. My frustration is pivoting to confusion. Ned rolls his eyes and, annoyed, he tells me as if he's reading out of a handbook. Treat all human blood and fluids as if they were known to be infectious for bloodborne pathogens. You need to be more careful, but as the director in charge, I should have made sure you were aware of the situation before we started. Ned calmly puts the foundation into our makeup cabinet and says, You're not going to want to have any unprotected sex until you know you're healthy. You know that, right? Ugh. Ned gross. But yeah, I got it. No sex. Fuck, what am I going to tell Mary on Thursday? We can't fool around because I might have AIDS? And when she asks me where I got it, I'm going to have to tell her. From a dead body. Yikes. Wednesday night. It's 10.53. I'm on call. I spent the last four hours on the internet reading and learning. Some facts are more interesting than others. Like, did you know about 1.1 million people in the U.S. are living with HIV? And about one in seven people living with HIV is unaware of their diagnosis. That's crazy, right? I haven't been able to find any statistics about funeral directors contracting AIDS from bodies, but I'm also not very good at the internet. Oh my god, I have to tell Mary about all of this at some point before our date night tomorrow. I know what I'll do. I'll tell her tomorrow morning and pretend like it happened right before I called. It might make it easier if she feels some sympathy for me. I've had a sour stomach for the last two days. I'm worrying myself into oblivion. TV's not funny, I'm too distracted to play drums, and food doesn't even taste good. What if I have it? What's Mary gonna do when she finds out? I've got a doctor's appointment Monday. It's the quickest I could get in. I just need to stop freaking myself out and actually talk to a doctor. I'm not doing myself any favors looking for a diagnosis on the internet, so I decide to click over to Facebook. Mary's most recent post reads, Hey everybody. At the lab, 
couple of big projects due next week. Ick. I smile into the glow of my laptop sitting on my bed in the dark. These status updates are my only real connection with her the last couple weeks, aside from the slew of what are you up to type texts that come in throughout the day. We're both just so damn busy. Carter is asleep on the floor near the foot of my bed. He's fallen asleep earlier and earlier lately. Hmm. I click like on Mary's status update and notice that there are two other likes on this post. Just out of pure curiosity, I click to see who Mary's other likers are. One, her sister. Two, Mike Taylor. Is this the I miss you chemistry partner, Mike? I've got to click his name, right? After all, I'm Mary's boyfriend. I should be able to take a look at who's liking my girlfriend's posts. So I click. But I don't see much information. Just his name, school, interests, and profile picture. Okay, so Mike Taylor goes to the school across the street from Mary and loves music, hiking, and chemistry. I think this is our guy. I click his profile picture to enlarge it. He's holding a lacrosse stick and wearing pads. I think about the phone call to Mary two nights ago. She was at her friend's lacrosse game and never called back. My brain breaks in this moment. This is I miss you Mike. 100% and Mary totally blew me off the other night cause she was with this guy. I feel sick to my stomach. How many other times has she blown me off to go out with this guy? My phone rings. It might be Mary. I have so many questions. Hello? Hi Grant, it's Denise from the answering service. Carol Downing's body has just been released from the hospital, so you can go pick her up. I take down all the pertinent information and hang up the phone. I close Mike Taylor's Facebook page. Looks like I'm going to the hospital. Wonder if they do blood tests at 11pm on a weeknight. Probably not. I'm on my way to the hospital in the van with a stretcher in the back. Honestly, I don't even remember driving to the funeral home to get the van. My brain is torn in half right now. One part thinking about the fact that I may have some terrible, uncurable, blood-borne virus circulating through my body, and the other half is thinking about Mary and Mike spooning and doing all the things Mary and I do in her crummy little dorm room. So, halfway to the hospital, I've convinced myself that I don't have AIDS, but Mary and Mike are certainly more than just friends. This opinion flip-flops every two minutes. I need more sleep. I feel crazy right now. I'm going to the hospital alone because it's a simple one-person job and it allows the directors on call to get a little more rest since they'll be meeting with the family and making arrangements in the morning. I like going on these night calls alone, especially on nights like tonight. I wouldn't be getting much sleep if I were at home worrying, so I might as well be out making money while worrying. Way better deal. I pull up to the back entrance of the hospital and back into a space near the sidewalk connected to the loading door near the ER. One of the hospital security guards, J. Mike, is already standing out back, probably having a cigarette. I park and unload the stretcher from the back of the van, being mindful of my bandaged right hand. J. Mike presses the button to open the loading door as I approach. J. Mike and I almost immediately start chit-chatting about hip-hop. He's a Jay Dilla nerd, and I'm a little too young to have experienced all that, so his conversation is a welcome distraction from thinking about having AIDS or how Mike and Mary are fooling around on her lofted bed. We go down the elevator to the basement of the hospital and walk toward the morgue. Ooh, a hospital basement and a morgue. Sounds pretty spooky, right? Well, it's not. It looks exactly like every other hallway in this hospital, except at the end of this hallway, there's a large metal door marked morgue. The lights are so bright it doesn't even feel like it's almost midnight. J. Mike enters a code into the numeric lock holding the giant steel morgue door in place. 
we break the crest of the door and it smells like decomp. Not super advanced, but enough to make the room's air thick enough to take a bite out of. J. Mike sees me notice the smell. That's your girl, Carol Downing. He's reading off a piece of paper connected to a clipboard hooked to the wall. I guess they found her floating in the river down by the bandstand a couple nights ago. She was already ripe when she came in. I feel bad for the guys who had to do the autopsy. I look around. This morgue isn't huge by any stretch of the imagination. There are only four body coolers. I suppose it's small but practical considering the size of the hospital. J. Mike opens door number two and slides a body-sized steel tray out parallel to where I've placed my stretcher. As soon as he cracked the door, whatever odor was steeping in the cooler exploded out. Ugh. It's a fucking disgusting, rancid, overpowering smell that's all coming from a disaster pouch with a body in it that couldn't be 110 pounds. All that smell from one little person. I thought these bags were supposed to be smell-proof, J. Mike jokes as he helps me slide the body over to the stretcher. As I close my right hand around the disaster pouch handle, I feel the cut on the base of my finger split open. The pain is just enough that I'm convinced there will be a copious amount of blood in my glove when I'm finished here. The sting continues as we're zipping up the stretcher pouch around Mrs. Downing. I take off my glove and I'm surprised. I haven't bled through my band-aid. How great. But I may still have AIDS. So, J. Mike walks me out to the van and helps me load the body in the back. Thanks for your help, J. Mike. He laughs and says, you shouldn't be thanking me. You could've ride in your van with this stink bomb. I'm driving home now. J. Mike was right. The ride all the way to the crematory where I was dropping off Mrs. Downing was absolutely, positively disgusting to say the least. The smell of water decomp in the van was too much. The smell is stuck inside my sinus cavities now. I'll never get used to this. At least I don't have a belly full of nacho cheese corn chips to yuck up tonight. That was the worst. I had to roll the windows down and stick my head out of the window for the four miles from the hospital to the crematory. But I made it. The van is empty and Mrs. Downing is in a cooler at the crematory, but her smell was stuck in the van and probably will be for a few days. Driving back to my house, I feel relieved having just made a removal without any major incident. But then I feel my cut rub against the steering wheel and think about Mr. Ryan and the possibility that I may have contracted AIDS from him. I look at the clock. It's 11.58. I think about date night with Mary tomorrow and how I need to tell Mary about my cut and what the implications might be. The clock ticks over. It's 11.59. I should call Mary. She's probably still up. I find all the evidence against Mike and Mary to be alarming, but I need to handle this AIDS thing before I start throwing stones at Mary accusing her of cheating. We've been together for almost four years and I know just about everything there is to know about her, except how she'll respond to something like this. That's it. I'm calling. I'm so nervous that my phone is shaking in my hand. I can barely press down hard enough on send to make this call. It beeps. The phone rings once. My stomach flips. I feel my body temperature rising. The phone rings again. What am I gonna say? How do I bring this up to her? Mary answers. Hello? She doesn't sound excited to talk to me. How are you? Fine, she says. Why are you calling me so late? Uh, I was just on a death call and I was thinking about you. I can hear the anxiety in my voice. I'm working up the nerve to tell her, turning into my neighborhood. I start to open my mouth to say I have something I need to tell her when she interrupts me. You know we can't do this anymore, right? Wait, what? I say completely blindsided. There's silence for a second and then she just repeats the phrase. You know we can't do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. 
Your whole life is that fucking funeral home. My call waiting beeps. It's Ned. It's midnight and I'm on call. I have to take this. Mary continues on about how the funeral home takes priority in our relationship. I interrupt her and tell her that Ned's calling me and I have to take it. <sighs> she exhales loudly and says, See? It's always that place over me. You know what? If you take that call, don't ever fucking talk to me again. My call waiting beeps again. I know what I have to do. I just say, I'll call you back and click to the other line. Grant, it's Ned. We got a police call at the train tracks by the post office. Meet me at the funeral home. I hang up with Ned and immediately call Mary back twice with no answer. Dejected, I turn my car around in my driveway and start heading back to the funeral home. So that's it. Mary's just done with me. Four years and she tells me over the phone. I wonder how long she's been planning on doing this. Do you think she's with Mike? Do you think they're laughing about it laying in bed together right now? I bet they are. <sighs> My sadness is briefly relieved remembering the whole reason I called Mary in the first place was to tell her I might have AIDS. Oh my god, that's right, I might have AIDS. Oh, what is my life right now? I pull into the funeral home parking lot and see Ned already has the van pulled out. The one I was just in with Mrs. Downing, aka Mrs. Water Decomp. Ned has all the windows rolled down. No doubt he noticed the smell. I park my car and hop in the van. We're on our way to the train tracks by the post office to pick up a dead homeless fella. It still reeks like Mrs. Downing in here. My name is Grant, and these are my funeral home stories. Join me next week for the conclusion of this story in Chapter 15, The Train Track Sleeping Bag. Hopefully you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please rate and review wherever you listen, and be sure to tell a friend. Follow me on social media at Pomo and Kitsch and check out my album Fetch by Pomo and Kitsch available on the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to music. Thanks for listening.